Um, once again, I'm so pleased to have Dr. Lloyd back, and we were able to share a little bit about his preparation for the week, and I'm, I'm excited to see his presentation today. But in that same vein, so many of you have asked if we could preserve it because you've enjoyed the lectures, and he's been gracious enough to uh, allow us to, and my thanks to Rich Milligan, who's put copies up here. If you think you'll use them, please feel free to take one today. They're right here on the table. Um, I'm sure you'll find them rewarding to review. This is Dr. Lloyd's uh, third presentation of four. Just a reminder that after that, we are going to do a couple of weeks of kind of decompressing. And to do that, we want your questions because we don't want you to come and have time here that isn't meaningful. So the basket is there. Take a yellow card because that's going to be Pastor Michael's uh, reminder to uh, get these questions together and we will get the best answers we can by going back to the presenters or researching them ahead of time. So please, uh, if not, it'll just be a free-for-all. And you know, sometimes those get rather disorganized. Let's open in prayer. Father God, I was reminded this week of one of our earlier talks. And as we defined the Torah, we said... We seek to come closer to our Maker by hearing His teachings and rededicating ourselves to their fulfillments. And as we would hear from the prophets that speak to us of times to come, but also our time now, help us to understand your teachings and to rededicate ourselves to their fulfillment here and now, not just in the world to come especially at this time of Christmas where the gift is here and on its way. Help us to receive that gift and to use it to the fulfillment of your will. And we ask for a special blessing today with Dr. Lloyd as he teaches and enlightens us to the meaning of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hello. How's everyone doing? Nice to see you all again. <clears throat> Every week I try to think of some way to make things new and fresh. Which means that I never really know what I'm doing until about Saturday afternoon. But it, it's interesting to me how when, it, when you're thinking about something, how a lot of things kind of stand out as you go through the week. So I'm going to be sharing a lot of connections that happened during this week. Uh, one of them, of course, you're familiar with the passing of George H.W. And so I wanted to begin with a couple of quotes. Because what I want to look at is social justice in terms of what the prophets taught us about social justice. But my main goal is to talk about this. It's something that I noticed when I went back to... My, am I the feeding back there? Or is it the other mic? might be this one. Yeah, it's still on. No, I need to turn it off. Okay. I guess I won't. It's facing the sphere. All right. Anyway, I'm interested in this. Because all the prophets talked about bad news, right? You guys have been... Uh, Behaving badly, you've been rejecting the principles of God, and so now we're in trouble. And they also all prophesied a day of renewal, a time of peace, a time of coming back, a time of reflection. So what I, want to, what I wanted to think about is, did they tell us how we get from A to B? I'm always on my students about, you have these plans that aren't plans. I'm going to go to college, great job. How do you get from A to B, right? And I tell them, oh, I know how you get from A to B. You work on your resume, right? You do public service, you do community things, you join organizations, right? You get to know professors so they can write you letters of recommendation. Yes, that's how you do it. That's how you get from A to B. Well, I thought, do the prophets tell us how to get from A to B? And guess what? They do. 
I also thought I wanted to have another quote just to show that I'm not just quoting a Republican. There's Bernie Sanders saying something similar. George H.W. said, America is never holy herself unless she is engaged in high moral principle. We as a people have such a purpose today. It is to make a kinder face of the nation and a gentler face to the world. This has been quoted a lot lately since his passing. Bernie Sanders, a great nation is judged not by how many millionaires and billionaires it has or by the size of its military budget. It's judged by how well it treats its weakest and most vulnerable citizens. A truly great nation is one that's filled with compassion and solidarity. Both of them are pretty much riffing off of Gandhi's statement that we can tell a people by the way they treat their most vulnerable. All right, just to get us started, this is what I teach in linguistics. You're like, what the heck does that have to do with anything? Nouns are, cop are common, proper, and abstract. And verbs are transitive, intransitive, and linking. But I think this talk today is going to make you rethink about that. Okay, so the minor literary prophets are these 12 right there. You can see there are some in each period of Israel's history. I'm really going to focus only on three of them simply because there's only so much we can do. Do 12 of them is pretty hard, but I think they're pretty exemplary. So we're focusing on three of them. They're all concerned with social justice, and each adds a unique perspective to that. Amos how to get their talk is let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Micah says, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? Hosea says the path to get there, and there is a better place. There is where we want to be. I desire chesed, steadfast love, which translated steadfast love or mercy, and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You can see that they were radical in their preaching, saying, we don't want you to just do more religious things. We want you to live differently. Each prophet predicts hard times and punishment, but it ends with the promise of better times, and each of them tells us how to get there. That's the hard part, isn't it? What do you do between A and B? So, as we go, I'm going to think about how each prophet relates to current events in the U.S., and I'm sticking with the U.S. simply because it's simpler. That's because we're where we live. It would be kind of interesting to do this on a global scale as well. So I want to start with the prophet Amos, who was the third of the 12 prophets, but he's also the first historically. Uh, he spoke in nine chapters or oracles composed during the age of Jeroboam, king of Israel. So he's in Israel, the northern kingdom. Jeroboam's reign was marked by great economic prosperity. The rich were getting richer and the poor poorer. Is it already sounding familiar? Social just injustice ran rampant in the land and economically weak could find no redress in the courts and no one to champion their cause. He was a shepherd from Tekoa in Judah. So he's actually uh, speaking to both. Amos uh, was not a professional prophet or a prophetic guild. He was the first of the writing prophets. And he begins with the Lord roars in Zion. Kind of an interesting way to begin, isn't it? He compares God to a lion. He then goes on to indict various nations. It's interesting that the prophets weren't just concerned with Israel. They speak against the various nations around Israel and hold them responsible. Israel and Judah, they hold the countries around them responsible for their actions and their sense of justice. So, interesting also politically today, isn't it? How much do we find other countries accountable? How much do we hold them accountable? The prophets held them accountable. Because the, uh, and <coughs> he's angry with Philistia, Syria, Tyrus, Ammon, and Moab, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. They trample the head of the poor into the dust and the earth and turn away the way of the afflicted. He can't hold them to the standards of whether or not they worship God because they don't worship the Hebrew God. But he does hold them to the standard of justice. Interesting. Basically saying everyone knows what justice is. All right, oracles against foreign nations. These are the three sections. Oracles of indictment against Israel and visions and words and judgments. 
So this is what he indicts Israel for. He says three or even four. That's a real typical uh, Hebrew way of arguing. Uh, I have three things against you. Well, really four. <laughs> and there's more than four. So I don't know. I couldn't figure out how to number them. You sell the innocent for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. You trample on the heads of the poor. You deny justice to the oppressed. You lie down on every altar and garments taken a pledge. You drink uh, wine in the house of God. Um, other things that it goes through, you make the Nazarites drink wine. And command the prophets not to prophesy. That's far more than four. But it, you can see that there's a heavy emphasis on how you treat poor and oppressed. All right, so Amos proclaimed, the coming of the day of Yahweh, and he says it isn't going to be happy. It's going to be a day of darkness. And this is what he says that God is saying. I hate, I despise your feast and take no delight in your solemn assemblies. So how do we get there? He tells us. Lest justice roll down like the waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. How do we get to a better place? He ends with uh, some visions, and I don't want to diminish those, but I want to focus mainly on the path to get there. So notice that it's in the middle. This is the path to it, and then at the end, he talks about all the judgments, and then at the very end of the book, he talks about the Davidic monarchy will be restored, right? So each prophet kind of puts the way in the middle of their document, not at the end. Basically, he's saying... Here are the punishments, but here's the way it could go if you do this. Remember I said last week that somebody taught me that no person who claims to be clairvoyant is ever going to tell you the future. They're going to tell you if you don't change, this is the future. This is the opposite. If you do change, this is your future. So how do we stand? And I'm going to be looking at some things that may be controversial, but I just thought, let's just throw them out there. This is our government spending. You can see the percentages. It's a little shocking sometimes. About 16 for Homeland Security and Defense, 25% for Social Security. So you can see that does take a big piece of the budget. But look how little. Housing and urban development, 1%. Health and Human Services, 28%. State Department of Foreign Aid, 2%. I hear people saying, why are we giving money away? I'm like, 2%? Down here, transportation. There's the highways and infrastructure, 4%. So, it looks like in some ways, at least we're spending defense, health, and social security. At least there is some sense of social justice to these. But I think... The lack of money for education and other things is a little telling, isn't it? In terms of income, I don't have to tell you this. The rich are getting what? Poor are getting. The smallest 1% is owning almost 20% of the world's economy. I'm not answering questions here. I'm just throwing it out there. Is it just? There is a, there's a, a, uh, an interesting metaphor that is used in India. They said the world is not just as long as we have justice of the world of fish. As long as a bigger fish can eat a smaller fish, the world is not just. And we only work to get rid of anything where the bigger fish... We're never going to get a just world. We're going to get rid of every injustice. We're going uh, to change injustice. Am I making any sense? You can't solve everything but you can work on the injustices you see around you. All right. The poor account for the greatest percentages of those imprisoned. Situation, of course, as you can see, is worse for blacks and Hispanics. Likelihood of imprisonment is higher for men in general. Highest for black men and second highest for male Hispanics. Now, a lot of people will say, well, there are reasons for that. And I'm like, yeah, there are a lot of cultural reasons for that. And none of them are much happier than the imprisonment. 
Yes, poverty levels, lack of accessibility to education, lack of accessibility to technology. Yes, so there's some victim blaming that happens sometimes there that I think is highly unfair as well. Money, what are we doing with our money? It's interesting. Look at the percentages. How we spend our money. Let's look at just transportation, 20%, 21% middle class, 15% for rich. Look at the difference though here. What's that one? Saving for old age, 15.9 for the rich, 9.9 for middle class, 2.6 for the poor. You can't afford to. I've been poor. You're not putting money away. I remember making choices. Food, toilet paper. I don't know. Tough call. Got to have both. All right. The percentages also, it's interesting that the percentages don't change a whole lot except in very telling ways. Look how much the poor is paying for utilities. 11.1, 4.8 for the rich. It's a percentage, yes. But when you're in that kind of position where you're paying greater percentages for health care, greater percentages for transportation, greater per you see what I'm saying? It's adding up. And that means less. So you're actually creating a society where you're going to have a whole lot of poor people unable to retire, which is what we're experiencing. The big divide in giving trends by income. Here's giving trends uh, since 2006 to 2002. It's up for the poorest. Do you see that? Negative for the richest. Huh. So here we go. The poor have the greatest percentages on transportation, health care, and food, and least for saving, and then the most charitable. Let's look at another prophet. <laughs> I'm not really commenting. I'm just saying, let's look at this stuff. This is a reality check. Sixth book of the Twelve Minor Prophets, written by Micah in the 8th century BCE, is composed of seven chapters, similar to the book of Amos. Micah attacked the corruption at high places, social injustice. It has two sections, judgments against Judah and Jerusalem. So he's just mostly focused in the southern kingdom. And a promise of restoration for Judah and judgments against other nations. Very similar pattern. All right, so here's one of his condemnations. Doomed to those who devise wickedness, to those who plant evil when they are in bed. By the light of the morning they do it, for they are very powerful. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress the householder and those in his house. He utters oracles against corrupt religious and political leaders. He attacks the prophets who attempted to give people false hopes. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead the people astray who cry peace. We talked about this last week. Any prophet can predict war, but if you predict peace, you'd better be what? Right. When they, both, when they have something to eat but declare war against them, it puts nothing in their mouths. Hmm, that sounds familiar too. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Nothing's new about humanity, is it? This is where we could go. The mountain of the Lord's house, house will be the highest of mountains. It will be lifted above the hills. People will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God, that he may teach us his ways and walk in his path. How is that going to happen? How are we going to get to this idyllic place? This one that's really often quoted, right? They will beat their swords into iron plows, their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not take a sword against nation. They will not learn war anymore. There's a song based on that, right? Ain't going to learn war no more. Okay, there's the ideal world. How do we get to it? It's kind of like when I was a fan of, of Star Trek Next Generation. I was more curious, like, how did we get to this world? Right? Everything's great. They don't have money, and the sexes and the races are equal, and everything's great. And they're just worried about aliens. I'm like, how did we get there? I wish somebody would write that middle part. Micah proclaims what is necessary to renew the covenant relationship between God and Israel. And that's what he says. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's interesting to me that it says that 
because it's almost an implication kind of like uh, I make with my students or parents make with children. What I'm asking you is not that hard. As a friend of mine said to me when I talked to her about um, making this presentation, she said, kindness is one of the easiest things you can possibly do. Justice is not that hard. When my kids were growing up, they'd be like, that's not fair. Remember that one? That's not fair. And I'm like, first of all, fair is something people do. Yes? Nature's not fair. I don't go out the door like the sky's going like, can I snow? I don't know. You do have to drive home. It could make it difficult if I snow. Nature doesn't care, right? Squirrel almost ran in front of my car this morning. Right? But people can be. Yes? I said, don't expect them to be. But you should be. Yes? You set the example. Be fair. Be a fair person. I think that's what he's saying. It's that simple, people. And notice right there, do justice. What does that mean? Do justice, that means it's a verb. It's not an abstract concept. You say, what are the abstract concepts? I don't know, liberty, justice. I'm like, no. They're verbs. I can justice you. (laughs) Am I making any sense here? To love kindness. To love it. And to walk humbly. Lots of verbs there, right? Love it. Walk it. Do it. So how do we stand? Uh, you know where I'm going to go. I can't help it. Immigration and Customs Enforcement officers surged 40% since Trump was elected. The biggest jump in arrests has been immigrants with no criminal conviction. The agency made 37,334 non-criminal arrests in the government's 217 fiscal year, more than twice the number the previous year. <clears throat> so I don't need to point out that the promise was that we were going to go after anyone who was criminal and illegal but apparently it's just criminal to be illegal um, whether you actually did anything wrong or not. So as you've seen in the news, people that have been living here for dozens more or more years doing, doing no wrong, contributing to the economy, are getting deported. Is that just? I'll let you think about it. And we all know about this one. I couldn't even find out how many are still separated. I couldn't even find it. August 30th, 2018 was the closest I could get. 497 remained in custody. Um, the decision was to criminally prosecute all adults crossing the southern border separation of more than 2,600 students. So you call someone a criminal just because they try to come into your country. You probably remember this picture. That brings it home. As a U.S. District Judge, Dana Sabral said, the reality is for every parent who is not located, there will be permanently orphaned child, and that is 100% the responsibility of the administration. Not to mention there are thousands of children right now being held that weren't separated from the parents. They came over by themselves because their parents wanted them to have a better life. For a frame of reference, I just learned about this recently because I always thought, why didn't somebody just, you know, do it right? Yes? And uh, I went to a panel on immigration, and I listened to a whole bunch of people who had immigrated rights talk about it. And uh, one of the, my colleagues from South Africa said, they said, what advice would you give to someone who wanted to immigrate to the United States? He said, have a lot of money and a whole lot of time. So this is how much it is. And I think this person got all relatively cheap, but... I found this online. To get an F-1 visa, which is step one, is $360. Additional legal residency, the green card, $1,490. $680 for the second green card, which you have to get, the cost of citizenship. So you can be a resident with a green card. You have no rights. You, um, you cannot vote. You're not really a part of the country. So uh, to, to get all the way to having the equal rights, with a citizen of the United States, you have to get citizenship. So the total cost, 
I mean, to a lot of us, doesn't sound like a whole lot. But she said it took a decade and thousands of dollars. She gives the total cost at 37.20. Now, I'm just going to look at Mexican immigration because that's a lot of what gets targeted in this conversation. They certainly are not the only people trying to immigrate into the United States. But if you look at the reasons that they're coming here, the, big, the biggest reason is crime. Second, economic problems. Third, illegal drugs. And fourth, corrupt leaders. Does that sound like the kind of people who have $3,000 in extra change? Okay, so we're sort of setting them up to say you must come in legally, but it's going to be really expensive and it's going to take a long, long time. I think solving this problem is going to be more complicated. He also says we should do justice. Refugees. We slashed the number of being allowed into the United States. I don't know if you saw this on the news. The United States admit no more than 30,000. That's the latest from Mike Pompeo. There are 69 million displaced people in the world, and we're going to let in how many? 30,000. He does say, to try to be fair to him, we must consider the context of many other forms of protection and assistance offered by the United States. I understand that. He's saying that uh, we're trying to do things in these countries to make it so their conditions are not so bad that they have to be elsewhere. I get that, but you saw the early report. That was about 1% of our economy goes toward that. Like, hmm. Happy news. You're like, good, finally, something happy. Justice reform seems to be something that uh, could possibly happen. We seem to have a Senate and a, and a president and a Congress who want to do justice reform. There's actually a bill already done, criminal justice reform of 2018. Uh, 2018. Okay, so they're trying to address some of the, our problems about jails uh, and equities in our justice system. In terms of doing justice, in the wake of court decisions legalizing same-sex marriage, 2015 has seen many state legislators take up bills that would restrict LGBT rights, including so-called religious freedom laws. And you can see up here the kind of things that are getting um, offered up into bills. Religious refusals, these are the states that are doing that where you'll have the right to refuse someone's services of some sort because you don't agree with their life or lifestyle. Uh, they're gay or trans, something like that. Anti-transgender laws. Um, there's my good old home state, Kentucky. Um, conversion therapy. Thankfully, just one state is promoting that by law. And nullifying civil rights protections. You can see several states are striped with that. I'm just going to leave it to you. Are these things just? Some good news. Ten, you can look at this website. Ten social justice organizations that rock 2016. <laughs> and it links you to organizations that are working for social justice. And as it says on the website, hundreds of groups are still working to protect people, resources, and liberties, and they're not going away. How about love kindness? I'm pretty happy with this chart. Religious volunteerism remains highest with women leading. So, people are picking up some slack here. If we look here at education and youth service, that's the second one, social community service, hospitals and health, civic, political, this is all volunteerism. Now, admittedly, these are small percentages of like the human population, but I'm pretty happy that there are people doing these things, aren't you? How about walk humbly with God? This was pretty hard to track on, <laughs> on the internet. <laughs> but I did find this chart. It, interesting, the silent generation, 1928 to 1945. The silent generation? I've never heard that before. Have you? Hmm. Did they call them the silent majority at one time? But that was not exactly that generation, was it? All right, so... That's what they say. Okay, you can look, uh, belief in God, 92%, and then as we go along, 
it does fall to 80%. But it's still, you know, 80%. Believe in God. Pray daily, 67% down to 39 and 51% attend services once a week to 28. So services are down. Praying daily is down. Belief is down, but it's not usually down. So church attendance is down 23%. Praying daily down 28%. Belief in God down 12%. Of course, you know, we can't take these as absolute facts, but that's probably an indication of something. Let's look at our third prophet. I can't believe I'm this far ahead of myself. This is great. I can actually slow down a little bit. That never happens. All right, Hosea is the first of the canonical 12 minor prophets. His book appears first in the collection of the 12, at least in the Christian Bible. His name means salvation or deliverance. It's related to Yeshua, Jesus' name. He lived during the last years of the age of Jeroboam II in Israel and the period of decline and ruin that followed the brief period of economic prosperity. The Assyrians were threatening the land of Israel and the people of the covenant act as though they were oblivious to the stipulation of the particular uh, relation to God. In other words, something that sounds familiar, that won't happen here. That can't happen here. We're special. Hosea refers to Israel as Ephraim, the largest tribe in Israel. Sometimes the whole nation was referred to as Ephraim. Just a little note of explanation. It's a collection of oracles composed and arranged by Hosea and his disciples. All of these are collected by their disciples. Some of the passages might be written by disciples. Like his contemporary Amos, the great prophet, he's a prophet of social justice. Hosea was a prophet of doom. He held out a hope to a people. See the pattern? Doom, hope. The day of Yahweh contained not just retribution, but a possibility of renewal. His message against Israel's spirit of harlotry was dramatically and symbolically acted out in his personal life. You all know this story? This is the crazy at prophet story. Isn't it? It's like, it doesn't get much crazier than this. Somehow it gets made into a love story when it's filmed, though, which is interesting. (laughs) Hosea is commanded by Yahweh to marry a prostitute. Okay, now... At the time, that didn't mean necessarily like a street vendor prostitute. She was probably a cult prostitute, a a worshiper of Baal. So that would make sense that he would marry her and basically become the symbol of God's relationship with Baal. And the people trying to remain married to God as long as they're that. Okay, he is to have children by her. The children are born to this marriage. This is where it gets odder, doesn't it? Because he names his children messages. Jezreel is his firstborn son. He's named Jezreel to symbolize what the house of Yehu will suffer for the bloody atrocities committed in the valley of Yezreel by the founder of the dynasty when he annihilated the house of Omri. So Yehu, the leader of the country, came into power by wiping out the previous house, the house of Omri. And Omri gets a bad press in uh, the Chronicles and, and Kings, but the archaeological evidence shows that Omri was really a pretty spectacular um, king in terms of public works, in terms of the things he accomplished. He actually built Samaria as the capital um, of Israel. He um, <coughs> he actually built a couple different capital cities. One of the one of his capital cities was. Jezreel. The people that are dug are Yesreel would be. Uh, you can actually hear kind of Israel in that, can't you? Yesreel. So he founded that city and uh, built a palace there. And they say, the archaeologists have now dug it up, and they say it was probably the most advanced building in the world at that time. So this guy knew how to hire people. <laughs> okay. But, in, of course, he was considered one of the bad kings uh, in the Bible, so just a few sentences. All right, so who was Omri? Omri was commander-in-chief of the army of the northern kingdom of Israel under Elah, who ruled for two years. Zimri, an official in charge of half the chariot force, assassinated Elah in his palace at 
Terza is actually where Omri is going to build a third. Um, he's going to build a city there as well. <coughs> the capital is going to be in Terza when he comes in. He's going to move it. Uh, he's going to kind of split it between Jezreel and, and Samaria. Samaria. Omri invaded and ruled Israel for 12 years. The hill of Samaria was purchased by Omri and a new capital built there, and then he established another fortress at Yezreel, which Yehu took and abandoned. And like, why would he abandon one of the best palaces and fortresses built in the world? And they said it's simply because Omri had owned it. But weirdly enough, they, he didn't really tear it down, so a lot of it is still sitting there. All right, so that's when we get to this weird love story. Um, but if you back up, it's interesting that Hosea condemns over and over the current leader, Yehu, right? But he still holds him to task for what he did to Omri, even though he thinks Omri was worse than Yehu. Am I making any sense? Because he's, he's still saying, that's still not how you do this. This is not how you come to power. This is not how you do the king of Israel. You know, kill everybody. Kill his entire family. So, Yezreel is the first son. <laughs> Have you ever heard the song, Wives and Lovers? Check it out sometime. It is such a weird song. And I just thought of it when I was doing this. <laughs> it is one of the most sexist songs you've ever heard in your life. Written in the 60s. Wives should always be lovers too. Run to his arms whenever he comes home to you. <laughs> I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> so I'm making a little play up there. I like to have little song titles up the top. Loruhama. Not pitied. Oh my gosh, his daughter's name is not pitied. You could live with Yezreel. But not pitied? Not pitied? Get in the house. Not pitied? Do your homework. Oh, man, that's terrible. All right. Lorahama. To indicate that Yahweh was no longer to be patient with Israel. So every time they heard him say her name. Swami. Not my people. Signifying Yahweh was no longer to be the God of the people. That's the worst one. I always thought, man, the third got the worst. What's her name? Not my people. I can see him out in the clubs. I'm just modernizing this, but you know. Hey, how you doing? What's her name? Not my people. <laughs> okay, that's a strange name. Your father hated you, didn't he? All right. So uh, some movie versions have kind of riffed off of the fact that his wife got pretty angry that he named the children these things. And then he divorces her in chapter 2. Apparently because she hasn't learned yet. There's debate about what's happening there. Some people think, well, maybe they're not even his children. All right, she is not my wife and I'm not her husband. Apparently that's how you got divorced back then. Then he's commanded, and this is so weird because uh, he's commanded, and you're like, wait a second, what happened? Her name was Gomer, the first woman that he married. Unfortunate doesn't translate very well today, does it? But the God says to him, go make love to a woman who is a lover and involved in adultery just as the Lord, what? Though they turn other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 pieces. He buys a wife. There's conjecture. Did he buy Gomer? Has she fallen into ill repute again? Or did he buy another woman don't know. Kind of a mystery. But he, t he is trying to, in his relationships with his wife or wives, he's trying to illustrate what it's like to be God, right? To be married to a rebellious woman. So, the, the source that I was using um, said he buys a woman for a wife, probably Gomer, the woman may be a sacred prostitute in Baal's shrine, a concubine, perhaps even a slave. He confines her to her a period of time so she will not engage in any attempt to search for other paramours. Okay, so it is a bizarre story, is it not? And I don't recommend these kind of behaviors. <coughs> but this is what happens. Now, 
Here's the way Hosea describes the situation. They sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. You've probably heard this one, right? Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. But he also says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. My anger will be turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. I shall grow, he shall grow like the lily and lengthen the roots like Lebanon. So again, how do we get there? Hosea tells us again in the middle. I desire steadfast love, chesed, which you translate, you, you may know it either way, right? I desire mercy, not sacrifice, or you may know it's steadfast love. Depends on your translation. The knowledge of God, not burnt offerings. You can see, very, very similar theme. But this is the first one to use this word, chesed. So I looked this up in, on uh, a wiki dictionary, but this is in conjunction with Jewish dictionaries and encyclopedias. Chesed is the kindness or love between people, the piety of people toward God, or love and mercy towards humanity. You know what comes next. How are we doing? <laughs> Chesed. If there were any two beings that showed chesed, it was these two guys. Do you know who they are? Yeah. David and Cecil, two of them were the most kind, generous people. They were entwined to the fabric of the community. They loved to walk around through Squirrel Hill. They would stop and talk to everyone. They were both shot in the synagogue shootings recently. It's amazing how fast things pass from the news. So, here's an example of chesed, and I couldn't help but see the irony. Two Jewish men living chesed, right? It's a verb to them. And what happened? Hate crimes against Jews in New York have doubled in 2017. 67 of the people who use the JCCs, the Jewish community centers, or face other than Jewish, different community, Jewish community centers have been targeted with 100 bomb threats. New York City alone, 20, uh, February 26th, the number of anti-Semitic hate crimes is up 94%. 500-plus Jewish gravestones are destroyed in cemeteries of Pennsylvania and Missouri. How are we doing? Okay. But I thought, man, I can't stop there. That's, that's really depressing. But it's happening, and I think we need to be aware of it. If we're going to have a, a world that is just... We've got a long way to go, and we're going in reverse in some places. Chesed. Then I found this. 30 most heartwarming random acts. You can go to that link, and you can be heartwarmed 30 times. But this one got me, man. This got me. First of all, look at this little kid. He's giving homeless people sandwiches. Here's his story. He's four! Four-year-old Austin Perrine of Birmingham, Alabama, learned that there were people in the world who were both hum homeless and hungry and decided to do something about it. Donning a cape and, <laughs> and going by President Austin, he asked his parents to take all the money they would spend on his toys and instead buy chicken sandwiches for him to hand out to the homeless. As he did, he gave each one a piece of advice. What do you think he said for his advice? Let's get four. Don't forget to show love. See? <laughs> That's how hard it is. Now, I stayed away from quoting people like Mother Teresa because we're always like, well, that's, you know, Mother Teresa. But this is a, a darn good quote. Let no one ever come to you without leaving better and happier. Be the living expression of God's kindness. Kindness in your face, kindness in your eyes, kindness in your smile. I like what Maya Angelou said. What face are you showing your children? It's like, is it this one? <laughs> Angry face. But it's not just about your children. It's what face are you showing people? Right? Darn it. I've been doing this lately. I've been introducing myself to people that wait on me in places and take care of me in stores, and it's so much fun. They don't know what to do. 
I had a woman help me the other day because something didn't have a price on it. Don't you hate that when you're like, of all the things I find in the store, it didn't have a price. So I found a woman, she's stocking clothes. She gives it to me and she, she can't find anything that's like similar enough to make a call. And then finally she does. And I just held up my hand and I said, what's your name? She said, Sheila. And I said, well, it's so nice to meet you, Sheila. My name's Keith. And she was just so happy. Like nobody pays attention to her doing what she does, right? A server in a restaurant. She's like, where are you from? I'm from DePaul. Well, that's very interesting. What's your name? Maybe I shouldn't say her name in a podcast, but she told me her name. She was very pleased that I could pronounce it correctly. And she asked how to pronounce my name in a non-Nepalese way. And I said, no, keep it Nepalese. I like it that way. Because I'm Keith. And, uh... All right. So how hard is it? How hard was that? Just little things, right? And I think there are other things that we could do, of course. But I'm just trying to be more aware of just doing the ones that are right in front of my face. Okay, so here's what they said. Let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love, kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? All, what did we learn today? Burbs, do justice, love, kindness, Walk humbly. Though each prophet predicted doom for past behavior, they all said there was a brighter future ahead, but it didn't just say it was going to come, did it? What did they have to do to get it? Act. They remind us that religion, justice, kindness, and humility are not abstract nouns or abstract concepts. They are what? They have to be embodied or they're worthless. Wouldn't you rather someone said, you know, if someone said, what is kindness, if they just pointed to you? Instead of saying, oh, it's an abstract concept, it means to, you know, be nice to people. Wouldn't it be cool if we could just go? I reviewed a colleague lately, and I asked my students for an adjective for him. And theirs was, he's kind. Oh, that's beautiful. I wrote him a really good letter. All right. Also, I think the prophets, these three prophets remind us that behind all the statistics are what? People. Man, I forget this sometimes. You know, I hear about, well, we've got to do something about this huge problem. I'm like, people. You're affecting the lives of people. Look at all those faces there. This guy here spent, I think, something like 40 years in prison unjustly. Here's a, a gay man and a, and a straight man who become best friends. Somebody helping the homeless. A, a Muslim woman become an American citizen. A Jew and a, and a uh, Palestinian hugging each other. A woman hugging someone at the, at the wall in Mexico. And this is Jackie Ivanko and her um, brother who's now sister. So they're behind all of these things we're learning about. These are the people. These are the faces. I want to look at them. Let's look at them again. <laughs> right? Can you make policies? Can you do things that will make people look like that? So, I've talked before. Prophecy is about picking up the strands of the present. See where they go. Yes? So, where are our strands going? Thank you. I like these strands. <laughs> All right, questions, concerns? Comment. Comment. top level from the bottom level income in this country was almost as great as 1929 before the yes. great before the depression and to quote my friend judge milligan do we learn from history 
I don't know. I'm still hopeful or I wouldn't be a teacher. Um, and even one of my favorite writers, Kurt Vonnegut, they asked, because he wrote pretty much very negative novels, right? If you've ever read one of his, they're pretty hard to be real happy when you're done. And, but someone said, are you a pessimist? And he said, pessimists don't write. <laughs> so do I believe that we'll totally change? Oh, no. Do I believe that I can make a difference? Yes. And do I believe I can teach other people and share with other people and inspire them to do that? Yeah. And that's the best I can do. The, the silent generation comment or question, uh, did anybody see or know that that generation was called the silent generation? I mean, you guys are older than me, but maybe not. I do dye my hair. <laughs> I dye my hair, so I'm, I'm 61. No, but my, my question is, like, because for me, it looks like that happens with two wars happening in it. And I do know this. My dad, like, never talked about the war. He just didn't. Yeah. But lots of men don't ever talk about the war. But when offered to become a physician, and they had to amputate a lot, and they were offered to become a physician, they became a farmer instead. And they were like, no, I'm not doing that ever again. Yeah. So it's kind of like that silent generation thing. I'm kind of like, how many wars were in that period? Will we ever be without war? No. <laughs> well, I would like to believe we would, but maybe we won't. But do we come to a point where we realize how much we are doing that isn't what we want to do? Like, yes. I want to be kind. And when I try to be kind, people are like, you know, I'm going to do it my way. You know, no, I'll do that. No, I'll do that. And it's kind of like, okay, never mind. And I should say, how can I help you do what you want to do? Exactly. So. I don't know. I interpreted the silent generation in that some of the things they talk about, the greatest generation, where you just don't complain, you just do what you have to do. I took it kind of that way. And, and also, yeah, I think a lot of men didn't, my father didn't talk about stuff. He never was emotional with me. That's not that unusual. And it's changing, I think. But it's still hard. I still feel a lot of pressure as a dad to be like, not perfect, but stoic a bit. Yeah, but I'd rather just be known for being kind. I'd give up on that stoic thing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and uh, I think Mother Teresa says something like, there are three rules of life or something like that, that uh, be kind, be kind, be kind. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll throw one at you. I, <laughs> since I only heard the last few minutes, I can act stupid. Um, my dad was in World War II, served in um, World War II. He never, ever talked about it until I sat him down. He was 80 years old and kind of forced him to do it. And it seemed to me like most of that generation was like that. And I've been Presbyterian a long time, so I've been around older people a lot of my life. <laughs> and that's pretty, I mean, I find that to be a characteristic of that generation. And then I see today, you know, you get on, on Facebook, or you, and it, it's, just, it's just the opposite now um, in ways I haven't experienced before. As a culture, we seem to want to lift up those who served more, um, there, it almost feels like there's a move to idolize those who have served in, the, in, in armed forces. And so for me, the juxtaposition between the two generations, one who don't want to talk about it because it's too horrific, and another who, I don't want to, I'm, I'm going to put it this way just for the sake of conversation, but who, who want to be recognized for their service. Yeah. What, what, what is the dynamic there? What, what is it I'm not seeing, or, or what dynamic is at work that I don't see or understand today that wasn't there in the 50s, 60s, 70s? Well, one of the things that I just heard, because they interviewed a couple of uh, or vets on Veterans Day on NPR and asked them about what's changed, what's different, and they remarked on the same thing. But um, they said it was Vietnam that, uh, you know, soldiers came back and got called pig and baby killer. And I don't know how widespread that was or, you know, uh, but it was enough that uh, 
I think the nation learned the difference between condemning someone's behavior or just are blaming them for something they, you know, they were drafted more than likely or volunteer really, you know, went for good purposes. And people recognize that now. But yeah, I don't know about the other end where everybody's automatically a hero in a uniform. I, I don't want to belittle that. But on the other hand, it seems like it's kind of gone an opposite way where, uh, I don't know, people like George Bush, George H.W. I quoted at the beginning, remind us that I think the middle pass, I think good, you know we should recognize people's service, but at the same time, um, recognize you just did your duty, right? You did what you were called to do. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I yeah. definitely don't want to talk it down, but I do think... No, I'm not interested in talking it down in the least. I'm just, it's, um... And a lot of, I think a lot of people say that. A lot of people that run into fires and a lot of people that run into fire, yeah. uh, they'll say that. Like, I just did what I was trained to do. So does it have something to do with the cultural understanding of the war itself? In other words, World War II, I think everybody understands it was a, if we're going to try to define it, it was a moral war. <laughs> yeah, you've got everything going on in, in Germany. You've got the camps. By the time that war was over, we were fighting what I would call be a moral war. Yeah. Have we fought one since? Good question. In, to that degree. And so the question, you're right, all those guys go off to war because we've asked them to, but we've asked them to serve in wars that have not had that kind of, for lack of a better word, righteousness to them. Yeah. Does that play a factor? That's confusing, isn't it? It's confusing. And I can't even listen to the answer because I've got to go. <laughs> well, it gets back to the theme of the day, which was justice and mercy and whether or not we're living in a way that reflects that. Two comments. One historical. World War II, we were attacked. It is the last war the United States has participated in in which Congress actually declared a war. Right. True. Any other questions? There's a passage in Hosea that I find to be one of the most unjust views of God, or I should say views of an unjust God in the Bible. It's the last verse of the 13th chapter. Uh, I think, Jack, do you still have it? People of Samaria must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground. Their pregnant women ripped open. That's you it. notice I avoided those parts. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a reason. I think there's a barbarism into some of the things that they say that I don't uh, adhere to or support, or, uh, but I don't want to get into the controversy of saying that I think some of the things they said were just muddle-headed. I'd rather just say some of the things they said are inspiring. Let's look at those, and let's try to see the rest of them as contextual, maybe. That's the period they lived in. But yeah, to say that to me, that's just horrifying. I can't believe anyone would say that. I can't defend him for saying that. So yeah, I don't, and marrying a prostitute, come on, there are things about this book that are questionable, uh, Hosea and, and, and any of them, um, but I really want to look at them as what do they say that could motivate us to be better people, right? We'll leave it to another discussion and say what did they say that horrifies us, that's a different matter, a different matter. Once again, thank you, Dr. Lloyd. And don't forget, if you have other questions, you're just shy to talk in class. Oh. Question cards are up front. So we don't end on a completely negative statement. I did want to show you that if you're curious, uh, the PowerPoint that I send out, there's more information about Mexican immigration, about immigration in general. 
There's more on refugees. There's more on anti-Semitism and hate crimes. All right, so I didn't want to go through all of those things, but I thought i will just let you know I did this research. I looked carefully at all of these different things. So it's not just coming from nowhere. All right, thank you.